Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelogue, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. And I am here in the Condé Nast podcast studios with Catherine LeGrave and Alex Postman, both of whom are editors for Condé Nast Traveler. Alex, in fact, is the editor of our topic for today, which is Barcelona, the city of Barcelona in Spain, but not quite Spain, almost Spain, sort of Spain. It is one of our favorite cities in the world, and it has been the subject of lots of news, and it's a perennial traveler favorite. So we wanted to catch everybody up on what's been going on there lately, as well as just uh, sort of lay out some of our favorite spots and the things that we love about Barcelona. So first of all, maybe we could start with kind of like the basics for people who haven't been before. Alex, what's the way into this city? How do you, Should you think about it as a neighborhood city? Should you think about it as a waterfront city? What's the way in? Well, it's all of the above, but I want to go back to something you said. It's Spain, but it's not Spain. Yeah. <laughs> Don't confuse it with Spain or they'll get really mad at you because Catalan culture has its own language, its own history, um, cuisine. And so, you know, don't make the piker mistake of trying to order paella in <laughs> Barcelona because you'll get some dirty looks. Barcelona is overcrowded for a good reason because it is an awesome city because it is a beachside city and it is a city of beautiful, small medieval streets, some more sort of edgy industrial areas that are being uplifted by sort of new incoming populations and cool cafes and restaurants and bars. So it's kind of the city that has it all, which is why it's one of the most visited cities in all of Europe. I also feel like it balances, you sort of alluded to this, but even with the food culture, it balances a really deep, strong tradition of food with some of the most innovative food in the world, right? In the last 20 years, few people have probably had as much impact on the food culture globally, but certainly within that region. Yeah. Food-wise, you can find a lot of Michelin stars to like down and dirty tapas bars. The Adria brothers, Ferran, who was the chef at the incredibly famous El Bulli, which closed a few years ago, and his brother Albert, have really defined what is considered sort of gastronomical modernist cuisine in Barcelona. Albert, in a way, who was in his brother's shadow for many years, is now really sort of both the king of gastronomy in Barcelona and the king maker, because there are a lot of alums of, mm-hmm. of um, both Il Bulli and, and also the other Adria restaurants. Foremost of those being, if you're going to pick one, and I would say this is something you're going to pay a lot for, but it is worth booking ahead for a single Adria experience. Mm-hmm. Tickets is an incredibly fun sort of like circusy atmosphere. I mean, physically, it looks like that. It almost looks like a Wonka esque like Wonderland. The, the machine or yeah. uh, carts or whatever they are. Yes. Right? Um, they're sort of famous for liquid olives where they will somehow <laughs> inject actual olives with like distilled olive liquid, you know, Peking style suckling pig, like incredibly inventive and fanciful entrees. Um, I've been to Hoja Santo, which is his sort of deconstructed Mexican restaurant. There's a restaurant called Enigma where you sort of need a secret code to get in. So they're all kind of crazy, fantastical experiences. And I think it is worth, you have to book far ahead. In fact, for tickets, um, maybe uh, depending on when you're going, like a year ahead. But it is worth it to just have that singular experience. It's interesting that Albert's approach seems to be to take something that is a little bit more accessible conceptually, but do really interesting things with it, which is a little bit different. For, like El Bulli's 
food was sort of from outer space, like it was just crazy stuff. And Albert's approach seems to ground it, whether it's in Mexican food, whether it's in sort of like fanciful circus concepts, but also the food itself. Peking duck is a thing people are familiar with, but he's going to give it to you in a really different way. I think that's true. And Albert is especially passionate about Catalan cuisine. So you'll see aspects of it in all of his food. But I know he's a fan also of a restaurant called Succulent, another chef named Carlos Abellan, um, who is an Ilbuli alum. And then so does tapas, but like incredibly elevated ceviche and small dishes. And um, that's in the Raval district, which is the immigrant neighborhood that used to be really sketchy and is now a pretty fun and colorful place to walk around where sort of life is lived out in the street and you'll have like shawarma stands right next to, you know, Chinese restaurants. But um, yes, I think uh, Albert Adria like distills what is unique about Catalan cuisine and then sort of infuses it into global cuisine. Hmm. You mentioned the Raval. First, let's back up for a second. You mentioned depending on what time of the year you should go. What time of year should you go? Well, I would stay away from peak summer. I mean, August, the thing is, it's going to be packed with tourists, but there are going to be no locals. So that just... Also, having been there in August, everything's closed. Yeah. Or nearly everything is closed. So restaurants everywhere are going to... It's like Greece or Italy where the rest of Spain... Uh, several restaurants on our hit list that that you know a few we could get into, but most of them were closed for most of the month of August. Especially a lot of the places that we recommend, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of those like hole in the wall places that have been run for decades by the same family. Like I had the same experience that I think Brad is talking about, where I was so excited to go and it was like on vacation for the whole month, which good for them, but it was like, oh, what a bummer for me because yeah. I'm not here a whole month. <laughs> yeah, those places, by the way, are also closed on Sundays. Are they? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, yeah. so if you're going to do like a long weekend and you're hoping to like really milk your Sunday in Barcelona, like you're just going to walk around a lot of beautiful neighborhoods and have yeah. a very limited selection of great food. So that's true of the market, the Boqueria, right? Yeah, it's Which also is the closed on market. Sunday. Otherwise, open from 8 to 8. Ooh. Every day. Even the times. I knew that, that off down. the top of my yeah. head. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, so while we're on La Boqueria, like get there early because it, it is both, it's interesting. It's both a, you know, a tourist trap and a place where locals genuinely do their shopping. Yeah. I love that place. Someone yeah. once told me, and I think we have this in our guide too, like the outside stuff is great. Grab a juice, do a lap, but the farther into the market you go is where you get the better stuff, right? Yeah. And you can get lost in there. Yeah. I, I, like it's easy to sort of like just forget how to get out yeah. once you're deep into <laughs> yeah. it. And you can literally eat your way from like the olive stalls to like the Iberian ham legs. And, mm-hmm. um, oh, we're going to have to talk people, about the ham. Yeah, we will talk about the ham. But uh, it's right off of Las Ramblas. Or La Rambla, and they're both okay to say. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) Giving people Um, permission. Yes. And to the point that Barcelona is an over-touristed city, but for good reason, La Rambla is sort of the city's Champs-Élysées. It's packed with people, but you can still find beautiful old flower shops, um, helaterias, um, you know, little coffee places, but you're also going to be accosted by, you know, trinket vendors and, you know... um, Those people that are standing still and then all of a sudden they start moving. Those are the people that are the worst for me. It's also a great artery for getting to some of the places that you really want to see. One of the big theaters in town is right there. It's sort of surprisingly central and it's as if Times Square didn't completely suck. It's like if if Times Square actually (laughs) had really cool stuff on it mixed in with some of the annoying stuff, I felt like. I think that's right, yeah. 
You can walk all the way to the beach, right? Yeah, you can get all the way down to the beach. Or all the way down onto that plaza that kind Mm -hmm. of like opens up onto the beach. Yeah, that spreads onto the beach. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I love going to the beach in Barcelona. Obviously, the most popular one is Barceloneta, right? Um, But we have Bogotel to the northern part. I like both of those, and I'm not above sitting there at one of those beachside bars, literally on the sand, having a drink. But there are lots of great places to eat nearby. yeah, the interesting thing about Barceloneta is that it's like it's not a beach where locals go to swim. It's yeah. not, you know, it's a it's great for a drink or there are some incredible seafood restaurants there. You know, I could even recommend staying there if that's the view you want to have, mm-hmm. and we can talk about where to stay later. Um, but you know, for like a true swimming beach, you're going to need to go outside of Barcelona. But it's actually very easy to do because the train system is pretty good and effective. You can hop on a train. 30 minutes from Barcelona, you're in um, Ocata Playa, which, you know, has chair rentals and beach clubs. And, you know, and that way, if you want to have like a genuine beach day, it's just like a quick train ride right outside the city. Yeah, I feel like the Barcelona does more of a, a hang out and enjoy like yeah. beautiful scenery kind of place. And that's where you go. I like those um, sort of pre-positioned concrete lounge chairs yeah. that are up <laughs> on one side of it, which are actually super comfortable. <laughs> See, it's more of a place to chill out than to sort of get your suntan on. I think that's a nice point, too. Like, you can get to all of those. I mean, we have 15 beaches from Barcelona that we recommend Mm -hmm. on our city guide, which is cool because it's like they're all within 30 minutes. um, And you can take the train and really be at some really nice beaches, whereas these are more for sort of walking, having a drink. See and be seen. Yeah. People watching. Nicer Coney Islands. Yeah. <laughs> and then to the south of that, there's actually a ton of like this odd little um, sort of strip where there's shopping and, and the giant W Hotel is there. So it feels very, very modern at that point. And then you can feel much more kind of conventional coastal Spain as you move further up. But you're all still in the city. It's all walkable from one to the other. And I think that the relationship between Las Ramblas and the beach is actually really navigable. Like, it's very easy to walk all of that stuff. So you can plan an afternoon where you can mm-hmm. really take a bunch of stuff in down there. Some of my favorite bars are down there. Tapas bars. Actually, like, you can find very traditional bars sort of in those back alleys off the They're beach. little, like, fishermen's enclaves down yeah. there, right? Yeah. One is a seafood bar, Cova Fumada, I think we have on our list. Mm-hmm. And it's really good for tapas. So what are we eating when we're not at the tickets or <laughs> any of the other sort of haute cuisine. How do you say that in Catalan? Y- you don't. <laughs> you just say, you just say expensive. Yeah. Sam probably knows. <laughs> well, we've been talking about tapas and they take their tapas very seriously there, but don't mistake it for tapas for dinner because yeah. like the, the biggest bonehead move you can make as a visitor is to go to dinner <laughs> at seven or seven thirty. Oh God, don't dare <laughs> do that. That's terrible. So tapas are like, you know, pre-dinner snacks and, um, there are tapas bars. You can get tapas of wine bars. You're going to probably want to, you know, spend an hour and a half kind of walking around a neighborhood and mm-hmm. trying things out. The, the sort of the fried anchovies at one place or the mussels at another. Um, it's a lot of seafood as compared yeah. to like Madrid, like the tapas that you would get in Madrid, right? You, because they're yeah. obviously close to the ocean, but they really do some of the best seafood 
sort of like small plates that I've ever had in my life. So fresh. Yeah, yeah. it's right there and they do a really good job with it. Their tradition is strong with that stuff. Yeah. And the small sandwiches, the montaditos, are famous yeah. in Barcelona. And again, like if you're in the mood for a certain, like Alex is talking about hopping from these bars, because certain bars have different specialties where they don't do pinchos, for example, mm-hmm. that they do only the ones on the stick or that they do the little sandwiches that we're talking about or specialize in seafood. So. Yeah. And we were talking about places that have like real atmosphere. I mean, a couple of favorites are um, Bar Kenyette. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, Kenyatta, in the Gothic Quarter. It's sort of, it's on everybody's hit list, but it just, it all, locals also go and it just feels like it's sort of trapped in time from the 1930s or 40s or something like local joint for tapas and a place called Bar Ramon, which is um, run by the grandchildren of the guy who opened it half a century ago. And they specialize in patatas bravas, which is fried potatoes with spicy tomato sauce, which is a local specialty. Mm. So that'll fill you up. Those are great. Can yeah. I plug one of my favorites? Yeah. Kumet e Kumet is one of my favorites. It's like sort of similar. It's run by four generations of people also on our list. Um, and the guy is super nice. I think it was his great, 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 great grandfather that started it. <laughs> and it just gets packed. But it's so fun to be elbow to elbow in there eating. And that's kind of that's a great wine list, too. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I originally started as a wine bar. Mm-hmm. And you can just sit there with wine and just keep ordering and ordering. And I remember the last time I went there, we got like... 16 things a lot and then we were done and he said to my husband like in spanish that's all you're done <laughs> yeah and we said for you know can we have the bill and he was great i i'll plug barmut which i think is still there and um it, which is further up it's not on the ramas it's up on the diagonal and was some of the best seafood i've ever had in my life and also just like a really great atmosphere like a place great place to hang out nice wine list and super friendly people um who just kept bringing the food but it's also the kind of place where I think, like a lot of parts of Europe, you can just go into a neighborhood, like you were saying, Alex, look at where the locals are kind of huddled up. And it may not be sophisticated. It may not be, you know, something super special, but it's probably really good. And it's probably a great place to hang out. There are, are a lot of little tapas bars like that that we sort of stumbled onto. Hadn't read about them anywhere, but there were lines of people kind of hanging out, you know, drinking and eating. And they were terrific, you know. It's it's just it's really good, sort of just drop in and, and have a snack kind of food. Save your sticks if you get the tapas with the sticks, right? Don't throw them away because that's how you count. That's my tip that I'll just keep. That's how they know. That's how they know. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Don't just be like, I'm gonna throw away my plate and help them out because it doesn't <laughs> yeah. help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about neighborhoods? For example, the Gothic Quarter. The Bari Gothic is a beautiful, like, small, alleyed, sort of medieval-era part of town. The Picasso Museum is there, and also, like, old boutiques that sell, like, gloves and hats and, you know, and <laughs> Very just specific chocolate. Things, like, yeah. yeah, super specific and um, really, like, preserved in amber. But you can get lost there and sort of walk through some, like, little you know, alleyway and then come into a square that has like a cathedral in it, you know, and I, in fact, I would recommend getting lost because, you know, you can't stray too far. You'll know when you're out of the neighborhood, but it's the kind of place where you really, it's sort of like what you stumble upon is really the prize. <laughs> Are there other, na- <laughs> we talked about the, the Raval, we talked about Bargatik. Is there any other... Mm, I like Exampla, the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So oh, it's yeah. just right, That's like great. the extension. So yeah. it's between the old city and it's just filled with lots of modernist architecture um, and lots of great bars. Really, the last time I was there, I stayed there. It's kind of what you were talking about, Brad. A lot of these places I 
don't remember their names, but it's a very, a neighborhood that feels very lived in mm-hmm. um, and very residential. And so it was just walking around in the evenings, you know, after coming back from dinner and being like, okay, where are we going? Oh, all those people are there. Let's go there. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys find it a very walkable town generally? I did. I felt like it, totally. it's a little hilly. but well, First of all, there are no Ubers, um, <laughs> which is, you know, how I think many of us are now accustomed to, you know, just hopping from neighborhood to neighborhood in other cities. And the weather's great all the time. It's not hilly. Yeah. Well, there are a couple hills. Are we can talk about hills. them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there are a couple um, hills. But I feel like you can really cover a lot of what you want to see on foot. I agree. There's the, a great subway system, there too. There is a great... I was yeah. going to say that you can take subways. Yeah. There are buses. You can take... Yeah. All, there are cabs. So yeah. it's pretty easy to get around, I feel like. Yeah. Just don't try and walk to Parkwell, right? That's... I, I did walk. Oh, did you? <laughs> okay. And Parkwell um, is... Um, we got to talk about yeah, Gaudi. Yeah, we got to well talk, talk about, about Gaudi. So this is a, a public park designed by Gaudi that is known for its mosaic-covered lizards and kind of like twisty spired buildings. Anybody can get into Parkwell at any time, but to really see the good stuff, you need a ticket. And if you show up without a ticket, as I did, anytime probably between like mid-April and mid-September, you may be shut out. So I would highly recommend buying a ticket online ahead of time. I think they are timed tickets, and I think they're very strict about honoring the time that's on your ticket. Mm-hmm. So I was so bummed out that we like, you know, we could walk around the park and there's a great view of the city, mm-hmm. but you can't sort of get in to see the good stuff, including, I think, uh, if you like house museums, I think a sort of pink house where Gaudi lived for a period of time is accessible with the ticket. Yeah, we could not get into the, we had the same problem, yeah. could not get into the actual house, but the park itself is kind of amazing. And everything that you think about and know about with, in terms of Gaudi with the crazy forms are actually represented in that park in one way or another, including this crazy sort of like colonnade that was like something prehistoric. Did you, Mm -hmm. do you remember that where there's like these giant sort of forms coming down and you walk through it almost like it's a tunnel. It's really surreal. It is literally surreal. (laughs) Um, And it's also a great place to take kids. We did not do that, but there are bunches of kids running around. You can see the forms that Gaudi uses are really just fascinating for kids, and they're colorful and fun. And um, Parkwell, definitely worth a visit. I guess you can walk there. I don't Walk and take the escalator. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I would also highly recommend you have to go to the Sagrada Familia. You know, if you're going to be in Barcelona, yes, it is probably the biggest tourist magnet in the whole city. It's famous because it's sort of the largest unfinished church in the world. Although I was there first time maybe 20 years ago and um, it was super unfinished. It seemed like a drip castle on the beach that like hadn't been <laughs> enclosed. And when I was there a couple of years ago, really sort of pretty darn close to looking finished. Um, I think it's 2026, right, that they're saying yeah. that. We'll see. Yeah. We'll have another podcast in 2026. So. <laughs> yeah, Again, sure. buy a time ticket ahead of yeah. time. Don't show up and, and realize that you actually can't get Because you really, you want to be inside, see the beautiful, like, rainbow-colored stained glass windows. The I, I think there's sort of the surreal... I mean, Gaudi is known for his Art Nouveau style, or sort of what's called Catalan modernism, and you want to see those shapes and form on the outside and on the inside yeah. and really experience it. I mean, it's, uh, you guys are, that's so tame. This it's thing majestic. is amazing. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> it unbelievable. Is cool. It's like, it is literally the, the most magnificent cathedral I've ever been in because it's the most different one. And it gets at, 
it's like you, if you take all the ideas that are, are into all cathedrals everywhere and you sort of like just explode them and the exterior of it, the difference between, I want to say north side, which is the older side and the side that Gaudi actually worked on and the south side. And again, I could be getting these wrong because my orientation is in my head and I'm not sure I'm correct about that. But the southern side, which is the much newer side, which is built from some of his plans, but constructed in a much more modern fashion is dramatic. And it was so surprising to me to go inside. I did not, it, it changed my entire perception of, of Gaudi along with other things that I learned when I was there. But you go inside and you feel like you're in a forest. And that was literally his model. He was, trees and plants were hugely influential to him. Everybody thinks it was drugs or crazy stuff. That's the rep that he got in the 70s. But but it's actually not true. He was obsessed with bioforms. He was obsessed with plants. He was obsessed with them as primary forms. And you can see that in Sagrada Familia in both the sculpture and in all of the architectural forms that are inside. And I just, it's so moving to go into that central zone and feel this sense of peace that you get when you look up at these columns that go up and it feels like a forest brought inside. It reminded me of the only other place on earth that I've seen anything like that. It was completely different, but it was San Juan Chamula in um, Chiapas where the Catholics had gone and created a church, but they couldn't get the locals to come into the church. And so they had turned the inside of the church into feeling like a forest. They'd removed the pews, they'd put plants, they'd put, scattered the floor with pine needles. And this reminded me, going into Sagrada Familia reminded me of that in the sense that he had pulled these forest forms in and made them the sensual sort of tone of the interior of the cathedral. And I would say too, to best see that, like resist the temptation to just walk through the church, go into the museum that they have, which is his workshop that they've turned into the museum, which is where you can see a lot. I think they have a section that's like inspired by nature and you can touch things, you know, like a whalebone and you can see really the shapes that he used and really how they uh, were manifested in, in his construction. It's incredible. Yeah. And if you want to understand the sort of Gaudi gestalt better, I'm going to make a controversial recommendation, but I've heard <laughs> great things about the Gaudi experience, the sort of oh, 3D yeah. mm. multimedia show where you're kind of strapped into a chair, but it, it Those takes can go you there. Horribly they can awry. go horribly awry. <laughs> but I've heard that this one is actually both worthwhile from the point of view of like actually understanding his inspiration in the in the physical and metaphysical world and, and then also just seeing all of these buildings and the aesthetic brought to life. Yeah. What other Gaudi places do you guys feel like are can't miss sort of place? Granted, they're all going to be you know, they're all going to be crowded. It almost doesn't matter. What are the ones that you feel like people really have to see? Well, the good thing is that while some of the other buildings you can go inside of, they, many were built as um, sort of private residences for wealthy Barcelona merchants um, or sort of apartment blocks. You can walk and see the facades in a couple of places. In fact, there are like two or three buildings that are on the Passage de Grazia, the Casa Batlo, which just sort of looks like Monet's water lilies. It's kind of like uh, shards of stained glass that, um, you know, multicolored, um, like a blue kind of surrealist stairwell. If you go inside that, also you need tickets and you need to get them ahead of time. But the uh, but the facade is beautiful. Um, and then just last year, the Casa Vincennes, it's like a Moorish fantasia of a building, uh, like just this sort of maximalist design, again, more like colored glass and um, colored tiles. And that opened to the public in 2017. 
you know, we've been talking a lot about these sort of explosions of color, but actually, um, I think one of the most beautiful buildings is the Casa Mila, which is, um, you can see when you're walking the Passage de Gracia, which is beautiful boulevard lined with That's like luxury shops. One, right? Yeah, it's an apartment building, and it's sort of this undulating, like sand-colored facade. It's really elegant and kind of more minimalist in, in, its, in its look. So... Alex, you mentioned the Picasso Museum. I know there are multiple Picasso museums around the world. What's special about the one in Barcelona? Well, Picasso is not actually from Barcelona. He's from... Malaga. Malaga. But this museum is, first of all, it's physically beautiful. It's spread out across like five little palaces, I guess they're called, in the Gothic Quarter. If you're expecting to see like Guernica or any of his like most famous works, they're not going to be here. But what I loved about it is there's a heavy emphasis on his his earlier work, and you can really see so vividly his development from like a classically trained painter, you know, in the pink period and the blue period, and even before that, actually, in his teenage years, yeah. like stunning, until you know, and then you see him sort of become this pioneer of cubism. But the the space itself, it's like you move from little room to little room, and it just it feels sort of quiet and intimate. It's a nice way to see his his work. Yeah, when it's put all in front of you like that in chronological order, it's it's impressive. Like the sheer volume of what he produced, I think it's like five thousand drawings or something that are there um and also ceramics are there which yeah they have, they have sculptures mm-hmm. yeah. yeah there's also the miro museum which is slightly outside of town and up in the hills a little bit in a park and i would highly recommend that one as well um, miro was from barcelona and very different from picasso but also part of that kind of breaking down of traditional forms it's not only a terrific collection of his work which it is but it's also a great walk and a great location to visit outside of town. And the building itself, I think he had a hand in planning. Yeah. I think he collaborated with an architect whose name is escaping me, but he it's this very sort of white minimalist space, which is surprising, but a great way to offset this right? <laughs> like bursts of crazy surrealist sculpture and the paintings that are hung. Inside. Yeah, and a very different sort of maybe more conventional in certain ways, but different because of the art, but from the Picasso Museum, which is down in the city and which is, you know, built in castles, this is very much extracted from that environment sitting on this hill all by itself and very museum-like, but really great. Depending on how much you love Miro, I I love Miro, and so I thought it was a terrific experience, the best collection of his his work in the world, Um, so. And while we're on the subject of Catalan artists, sort of hometown heroes, and given the staunch local or regional pride, I would recommend uh, the Museo Canframis, which is like a sort of hidden gem in the Poblenou district, which is a kind of former slightly industrial, like, warehouse-y neighborhood that has now been sort of transformed by, you know, artists coming in, um, disused factories that are now sort of more interesting spaces. But there are, I don't know, two, three hundred works of contemporary Catalan artists in there. Maybe not so well explained to the English-speaking public, but still I think it's worth seeing Catalan art and sort of the pride behind it. What about where to stay? We haven't really touched on that. What are some of our favorite hotels? It is a good hotel city. There are lots of really good hotels. It's a good hotel city. Interestingly, just because of the overcrowding, um, last year the mayors have raised the tourist tax and put limits on, I think, the number of beds in new hotels, maybe even the number of new hotels that could be opened in the city. Yeah, I think it's it's within a certain zone, right? The immediate zone, they can't open any new hotels. You can only change the room if you're updating it so you can't add beds and then there's 
there are limits to what you can add in sort of the outer ring. So you consider the the old center of Barcelona. They're saying we're not going to add any more more hotels there. Still, there are plenty of places to stay in and near the mm-hmm. old center. Everything from the original hipster hotel, which is called Casa Camper, in the Raval neighborhood that we were talking about, the sort of slightly seedy but very cool, diverse neighborhood, to um, actually one hotel that came in under the wire uh, for that edict last year is the new Soho house, which I stayed in. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's in the Gothic Quarter, mm-hmm. overlooking a really quiet sort of palm-lined square uh, with great views and a pool and roof. Um, but you've got a wide range, and you have... We talked about Barcelonetta, the W Hotel there, which sort of looks like a giant undulating <laughs> sail. Yeah. It's very showy, but, um, you know, views of the Mediterranean and, uh, uh, yeah, you're right there on the beach and all that brings. Um, football? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I say this as somebody who actually didn't go. I was not a soccer fan at the time. But if you have any affinity for soccer at all, and you should, this is one of the temples of soccer. The Camp Nou, which is Barcelona's home stadium, FC Barcelona's home stadium. It is the home of Lionel Messi, who's the, you know, arguably the best soccer player in the world. But more importantly, the city's team is just one of the sort of more outstanding teams in soccer history and certain in in La Liga, Spanish soccer history. And the fans are insane. They're just crazy. And on game days, you will see them all over the city wearing their jerseys, celebrating the sport. It's crazier than fandom as we know it here. It's crazier than any fandom outside of, you know, other big soccer towns. But it is one of the magical things about that place. And particularly if you can go, if you want, if you really want to arrange your schedule around it, uh, El Clasico would be the big one. That's the game between Barcelona and Madrid. Um, Every year there are two of those, one in Madrid and one in Barcelona. That's definitely one to go see because people will be just nuts. Um, And then the other one that you could go see is a derby, which is a game between Barcelona and one of the other Barcelona-based teams, uh, which is Espanyol. And so they are rivals. That's an intra-city rival. So those are two of the ones where the fans are really going to be most nuts and most passionate, and that's when you really want to see it. Tickets are hard to get. They do set aside ticket. That most of the tickets to the stadium are actually owned by subscribers, what we would call you know season ticket holders. I think they call them club members there. But there are tickets available if you plan far enough in advance and if you get on kind of lists to wait and, and get them when they become available because the truth of the matter is a lot of those people don't show up for the game, so there actually are tickets that, that are available and sometimes you can get them on the aftermarket. But, yeah, if you want to see the soul of the city in a different kind of way than the other ways we've been talking about. That's a great way to do it. Highly and recommended. I think that goes to the idea that Barcelona is a great city for kids also. True. Aside from the fact that you eat dinner so late, but you know, <laughs> they'll yeah. be tired for a week. So if you have kids who who are soccer fans or, you know, even I think Gaudi, it just like plays to the imagination of children. There are a couple other places maybe worth calling out. One being Manjuk, which is one of the sort of hills on the on the outskirts of the city. There's a lot up there. You have to take a cable car up, which can be fun with kids. I think you can walk too, but, you know, take mm-hmm. the cable car. There's a museum of Catalan art. Um, there's a castle that, like, in the summer, there's open-air cinema. And that's the area where there's, like, the old Olympic Stadium. The Barcelona Olympics were in... 1992. 92, yeah. 92, mm-hmm. yeah. 
So that's a fun thing to do with kids. Also, another thing you may catch as you're walking around is this like kind of amazing tradition in Barcelona of uh, castells with these human towers of people, um, which is like a 200-year-old tradition where you may have like up to 40 people who like stand on each other's shoulders and then like a little kid scampers up to the top and raises his (laughs) hand. Um, And these are like competitions and you may catch those, you know, as you walk around the city. There is a schedule published online so you can like plan around it, but those are pretty cool to see. I did not see that when I was there. That's kind of amazing. I actually liked the being out late well, okay, let me put it this way. Kids love it because they get to feel like they're staying up late, you know, and they get to feel all grown up. When we had our son, we didn't have him in Barcelona, but we had him nearby. He loved being out and having dinner really late, walking I mean, around. You got the siesta you built do have in the too, siesta. so. Yeah. yeah, you do have the siesta. Yeah. Or you let him fall asleep at the dinner table. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> that actually never happened, but I did see, yeah, yeah, anyway. Okay, so... Barcelona has been in the news. Catalonia has been in the news this past year uh, because of tension between the province, the state, and and Spain itself. Catalonia declared itself independent. Spain was not happy about that. Spain forced them to recant. The chief executive of Barcelona resigned. I'm wondering if there's been any new developments recently in the change of, of that relationship. I think it's all kind of on hold because Spain recently had an election. There's a new... Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know where he stands on it, but I think everything has sort of been suspended since the end of last year. Apparently he's supposed to be, I think that the the goal was kind of ousting um, the other Prime Minister, and Sanchez is supposed to be more favorable. Like, this is one of his big tasks, right? Meeting with leaders um, of the region and and figuring out how best to move forward. Um, And apparently he's supposed to be very sensible to that. So we'll see. I don't think that'll be palpable really to visitors except for the like the the ubiquity of Catalan flags that you'll see in Barcelona, um, some graffiti, you know, signs, you know, hung outside of apartment buildings. But I, I think in terms of like traveling there, it's not it's not the kind of conflict that you're going to necessarily feel as a visitor. It wouldn't represent a tremendous amount of change kind of either way, right? Because right. You, already the language is different. Already yep. the signs are all different. It, it is like, from those perspectives, it is like you're not in Spain anymore. Um, and you can't use your high school Spanish when you're there. So it's not going to be that significant a change, even if it does happen. Okay. That's, uh, I think, plenty for people to get started with the trip to Barcelona. So thanks, you guys, for coming and talking about this. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. You can visit us at cntraveler.com. Of course, listen to the Women Who Travel podcast from Lale and Meredith. That is a terrific podcast. They are in season two. So you should be subscribing to that and listening to it. We are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram and Twitter. Please do tweet at us. Let us know what your favorite thing in Barcelona is. Um, Give tips to other travelers. We will share those back out. So uh, send them our way and do review us on iTunes. Give us feedback there. We do look at it. We know you don't like the ums. We know you don't like the curse (laughs) words. We've tried to be better, but I think we're just, it's just ingrained in us. Catherine, how can people get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter at KJ LaGrave. Alex. I'm on Instagram at WordMover. And I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everybody. 